The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. I'd like to welcome everyone to Common Ground's monthly evening Dharma. And uh, tonight we have Sandy Parva as our guest speaker. Sandy Parva will be talking for about 45 or 50 minutes, and then there'll be a question and answer period. And uh, then everyone is welcome to join us in the community room for uh, tea and juice and treats and some social time. So um, Santi Caro is a practitioner and student of the Dhamma, the translator, and a Buddhist meditation teacher. He lived in Thailand at Suan Monastery for many years and studied under the guidance of uh, Buddha Dasa, a well-known Thai teacher of Buddhism. He currently lives in southwest Wisconsin with his wife, Jo Marie, and they are building a uh, center there, Liberation Park, to support uh, Buddhism in the Midwest. And he also has interest in the Enneagram and in the 12 steps. So, only this talk tonight is entitled Busyness. I could tell you uh, the other things I'm interested in, but that would uh, be too easy of a transition to tonight's talk. Uh, Organic farming, uh, race, power, and privilege issues, Prairie restoration. We have a little bit of prairie in Savannah at Liberation Park, and wind turbines is a local issue, and uh, classism in the rural towns of the Midwest, like ours, where there's a large Hispanic, Latino, Latina population, and so on. So, a lot of interests, but that's not what the talks about, partly because we're trying to develop a practice center on, um, without fundraising and uh, doing a lot of the work ourselves because that's kind of our values and it's fun. It means there's lots to do, as well as traveling around teaching or Joe Marie working as a hospice nurse, plus trying to do some translations, rehab from shoulder surgery. That was Joe Marie. Uh, And so on and so on. There's a lot going on in our lives as well as many of the people we meet and quite a few of the people I speak with on retreat, at workshops, at talks like this. So for me, busyness is a very active reflection. It's something I'm trying to sort through and therefore uh, give talks about it. And it's one of those talks that I haven't figured it out. 
so hopefully nobody has that expectation. Uh, I haven't yet written a book how to uh, deal with busyness or things like that. But that's the case with most Buddhist books. The authors aren't yet awakened or liberated or whatever. We're all on the path and trying to make sense of this confused, complicated, constantly falling apart human existence that we seem to be involved with. And busyness is one theme that not only has gotten my attention, but it seems uh, gets other people's attention too. Tonight, uh, with this topic of busyness or being busy, I'd like to start by making a few assumptions. And we all know that that's not a good idea. But sometimes it's good to just sort of set some issues aside. Uh, let's call it skillful means if you're into the Buddhist lingo. So some assumptions that I'd like to make just in order to skip over them and not because I assume you'll agree with me. That's not required or expected. But I. I'd like to assume, although it's arguable, that our society, the political economic structures in which we live, and our culture, and by that I mean largely mainstream, I'm not sure that's the right word, but the white middle class Anglo Protestant culture that is still kind of dominant in this country, especially in our part of the Midwest. Uh, I'd like to make the assumptions that this society and culture promotes busyness. And here are very quickly some reasons why I think it's it's not too damaging to, to make these assumptions. One, uh, America seems to put a big emphasis on productivity, that being productive is a big deal. I, I was raised that way. And it was kind of surprising to find out that it wasn't so big a deal in Thailand. Or being hardworking, like with athletes, you know, the kind of, at least I'm still a Chicago sports fan, you know, the blue collar basketball and football and baseball players who work hard. Those are terms that matter a lot in this country. I'm not sure they matter as much in other cultures. I can't, I don't know enough to say they don't. The only other culture I'm really familiar with is Thailand. And it's, it's different. They put certain things above being hardworking or productive, although, although they matter there. So just these values of productivity and being hardworking promotes busyness to a certain extent. Also, we have uh, 
it seems to me, an economic system and a culture that is ambitious. Uh, I was speaking at a, I think it was a Unitarian church in Carson City, Nevada. might have been Episcopal. I've spoken to some Episcopal churches lately, Buddhist groups, but in those places and on one wall, they had, clearly they'd had some teenagers brainstorming what it is to be good or something. And ambitious was up there, which traditionally in Christian history, that's not such a great thing. It's not all that great in Buddhist perspective either, but in America, if you're not ambitious, you're a loser. I'm exaggerating, of course, but ambition of consumerism, the value we place on owning stuff, buying stuff, uh, reselling stuff, throwing it away. It's all one part of a package, but that all keeps us pretty busy, all that stuff that uh, American life is so much about. And even when we become affluent, if we have bigger houses, we've got even more stuff, plus the storage units and things like that. So that's another set of things that seems to me uh, likely to promote busyness in our lives. A third area intertwined with these two is security. Uh, we're a very security conscious culture. Uh, maybe many cultures are here, you know, national security state, having insurance, having health insurance. I agree it's a good idea, even if the system doesn't work very well. But we, we value our security, and therefore that keeps us pretty busy, it seems. And then uh, kind of one last piece is how proud many Americans are at our ability to do more than one thing at once, which we call multitasking. And just that that's something to be proud of is pretty much a setup for being busy. You know, it's, it's not enough to be doing one thing all the time. It's even better be doing two or three things all the time. So with that little bit of exaggeration and uh, apologies if you think I've uh, misrepresented our society and culture, I, I'd like to just kind of sketch out what seems to me fairly realistic generalizations about the situation in which the majority of us are living our lives, trying to earn a living, trying to have food, shelter, clothing, medicine, trying to find meaning, as well as some peace and happiness. So with, with those assumptions as background, I'd like to speak to the question, how might we practice with this situation? To me, it's a 
an important question because as far as I can tell, the number one reason or excuse for not meditating, which is a slice of practice, is I'm too busy or variations on that. I don't have enough time. There's too much to do. My plate is full. I have to take the kids here and there, or once the kids are grown up, it's mom or dad, or the cats and dogs, or hamsters, or whatever. So, although maybe it's not always the most honest reason or excuse, but let's, for now, take it at face value that, in my experience, the most commonly cited reason for not meditating regularly. And this is, of course, with people who believe that meditating regularly is a good, healthy thing that they would aspire to. Yet, they're too busy. And by the way, um, what that means is being busy is a higher value than meditation. Uh, which is not generally how it's seen. It seemed like all this busyness, whatever that is, prevents me from meditating and therefore I'm a victim of busyness. So there's some dynamics going on around this that I'm trying to explore and tonight I'd like to uh, approach them with roughly four, four suggestions about how we might practice with this busyness. The first is some sort of inquiry into what's going on. And Buddhism offers lots of tools for inquiry. In, in my understanding, pretty much all the teachings of the Buddha are an inquiry of sorts. Of course, if we're literalist fundamentalists, we just take it as the truth, memorize it, and go, oh, the Buddha said blah, 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 that's the way things are. Most of us don't do that with Buddhism, though we may do it with psychology or science, because some of us, that's what we grew up with. But science, psychology, and especially Buddhism, in my view, are tools for inquiry into what's really going on in our lives. So I'd like to offer a couple very simple basic ones as a start to practicing with the situation of busyness. One very simple framework that the Buddha used over and over again is the framework of harmful and beneficial. This generally applies to behavior, behavior of body, speech, and mind, or thought. And it's a very simple frame for looking into what we're doing, how we're behaving. And that's at least one chunk of busyness, at least on the surface, busyness is all the stuff we're doing. Although I think sometimes it's the stuff we're not doing, but we think we should be doing. So it, it gets a little complicated. 
but for a start to actually inquire into all the stuff we're doing that we seem to be or believe to we are busy with. And so as we go through our day, starting to ask, well, here I am driving somewhere. Is this harmful or beneficial? It's not always immediately obvious or clear, so the point is not to make a quick assumption, well, of course, I just have to do this. That's kind of the easy way out. It's, it's, maybe this is a stretch, but it's kind of like the argument that you're not guilty of torture if you're just following orders. You know, well, I'm not guilty of busyness because I have to be. So if, if we're really interested in a practice of inquiry, insight, and wisdom, we won't make that kind of assumption, but actually look at, okay, what am I, where am I going? Is this activity, is this thing I'm putting energy, time, and other resources into, of harm? Am I being harmed? And usually the framework is, is it harmful to oneself? Is it harmful to others? Is it harmful to everyone? And you can take everyone as everyone directly involved or even more broadly. Say, is this harmful to society or the ecosystem through which we're moving? It's a very simple framework, easy to memorize. And with a little practice, we can begin to go through our day asking ourselves, is, okay, I'm at the computer doing something. Is this harmful or beneficial? The actual stuff I'm reading or the way I'm surfing or researching, is it harmful or beneficial? A similar perspective is wholesome and unwholesome. And you could use either two, they overlap quite a bit, is what I'm doing. So I'm driving to go buy something. Is this doing any harm to myself or others? Is it wholesome in that it supports liberation from suffering? Or is it unwholesome in that it perpetuates suffering? That's the basic definition of wholesome, skillful, healthy, and unwholesome, unskillful, unhealthy. It's more sophisticated than a simplistic good-bad. You know, is this good? Is this bad? Because that tends to be somewhat knee-jerk. But to look into wholesome and unwholesome in terms with the perpetuation of suffering and or supporting of a practice, a life that's finding its way out of suffering. To do this, we clearly need mindfulness. And especially mindfulness 
in the variations of meanings of the original terms. Sati in the Pali language, Shmirti in Sanskrit, which has the has for now I'll say three meanings. Um, the one we're probably most familiar with in North American Vipassana, which is by the way not the same as Southeast Asian Vipassana, those there's a connection is where mindfulness tends to be being in the present moment and paying attention to something that's happening right now, such as our breathing in and out or the movement of our feet or how we're feeling or being mindful of the thoughts going through and so on. That meaning of mindfulness is great when we're really on top of things, so we're, we're running around the house doing something frantically. And if we're mindful enough, which if we're frantic, you know, it's a little iffy, that will be very mindful. But it would be great if there was a glimpse of kind of presence to ask, wow, is this harmful? Or is this healthy? Or um, when we're trying to juggle three things at once, whatever those might be, is this harmful or healthy? If we're mindful in the sense of present here and now, we can actually check in with what's going on right in this moment. But often we're not quick enough. We're not that mindful. Sometimes because we're so busy. Or, or because of the way we're busy. But a second meaning of mindfulness, and this is how they translate it in Thai, which means to recall. So the meaning's a little broader. Recall can be both present moment or what happened just a little while ago. So you're kind of frantic doing something or you were juggling three things or you were driving and talking on the phone and uh, mentally compiling a shopping list. And then, you know, you stopped at a red light and sort of collected yourself and you can recall, wow, I was just doing ABCD kind of all at once. What was going on? Was that helpful? Is this making me a happier, healthier, more liberated being? Or is it perpetuating certain things in myself that I don't find particularly useful? And then a third meaning of mindfulness, which we don't hear about as much, is memory. So <clears throat> sati and shmirti can literally mean to remember. And some scholars say that's the original meaning of the word. So you remember something. What holds all three of these together, and so you can use that for what happened this morning or yesterday or even when we do this sort of practice that traditional Buddhism recommends all the time where we remember things and do a review. So mindfulness of busyness isn't just limited to the present moment, though that would be a great place to 
pay attention and see what's going on. But we can also recall what was just happening and recall can extend into remembering what happened earlier. And we might even review back days, weeks, months. And if we really want to look into this over uh, the course of our lives. What holds these three meanings of mindfulness or sati together is through mindfulness we bring something to awareness which is where now it's possible to inquire and investigate. So as we're doing this, uh, one way is to investigate the consequences. So sometimes it's not clear if certain behaviors are, are busy or are harmful or beneficial. I spend a lot of time at the computer and for example um, I have one of those email programs that makes a sound whenever a new e email comes in and of course I could turn that off. I know how to turn it off. I've been on that option page and sometimes I do but usually I leave the sound out. So it goes bing or whatever it does kind of a beep. And then, of course, right away I've got to go check uh, what new piece of spam just came in. So what are the consequences of doing that? Uh, my, I'm not getting spam too heavily right now, so it only happens maybe three or four, but I'm signed up to so many news lists and maybe that's another thing. What's the consequences of, you know, move on and peace majority and NARPAL or NARAL and care and this and that and Thai stuff and uh, what's the consequences of getting all this and reading it and bouncing around between them? Is it harmful or is it beneficial? I'm not suggesting we make any snap judgments, but actually observe in our bodies, in our feelings, in our habits, in our thoughts, is this behavior, which I believe is choice. Nobody's making me subscribe to all those emails, although there's an impulse in me to stay on top of things, which is, of course, hopeless. But still, you know, this is, I'm kind of, maybe many of us are little Sisyphus is putting our, pushing our rocks up the hill only to get, you know, flattened when they roll backwards. So through mindfulness, we can pay attention enough to start noticing which things are, have beneficial consequences in which have harmful, both in the short term and the longer term. Another place to inquire is what is my actual state of mind or my emotional state? Or even like with computers or driving the car, what's my posture as I go through this stuff? I have kind of a twitchy right shoulder 
And I'm wondering, is that because of the mouse and all those right clicks and incipient tarpal tunnel in my tarpal tunnel in my right arm? What's going on in this body and mind with the various ways each of us uh, stays busy? Of course, I'm sure a few of us don't stay so busy, but. Uh, even you know, even retired people, the way to sort of stay healthy, i.e., be a good middle-class American, is keep busy or stay active. I guess is another way to put it. And then a third area for inquiry is the motivation behind all this. So in my case, why am I subscribing to so many email lists? Why do I get all that news? And I, I know one level of why, but what's what's the why underneath? You know, why do I feel I need to stay on top of all these things? Well, because I should be able to, you know, weave this into my Dharma talks. That's just part of the answer. Uh, this gets into some of my self-image ways I think I ought to be. Partly I have an identity around being an engaged Buddhist and something like that, but this I'll come back to this in a little while. So with a very simple framework, and by the way, more complicated frameworks don't work very good when we're busy. So something really simple like harmful beneficial or wholesome unwholesome. <coughs> Mindfulness, both in the moment, recalling what was happening recently, or even, you know, once a day or once a week, doing some mindful review. Because when we bring this stuff into awareness, when we pay attention, even if it involves some memory, often we start to relive it. And it's maybe not the full experience of when we were doing it in the moment. But I find often there's still some of the body reaction, the emotional feel of it. And so even if I'm remembering something from yesterday, there's enough that's left over for me to make these inquiries. Once it's held in mind, then another piece of core Buddhist teaching that goes very closely with mindfulness and overlaps with it is Yoniso Manasikara, which means something like wise, skillful reflection. The actual words have to do with something like turning it over in the mind. And there's sometimes the mindfulness teachings are so simplified that it sounds like all you have to do is notice something. But in the, the fuller teaching of early Buddhism, just noticing is, a, is the starting point. And then there's a kind of turning it over, uh, being alert to it. A sampajanya, which means something like full awareness. It's a more rounded 
comprehension that starts with mindfulness. So we ponder these things. We turn them over to go into them more deeply. And then there are all kinds of related words that mean examination, inquiry, uh, scrutiny, investigation. So all of these make up uh, a very significant part of Buddhist vocabulary. And we can apply them to busyness in all the forms that it takes in our lives. The second piece I want to bring up is we could also uh, do a similar kind of investigation into our vocabulary, the words we use like work or busyness, but words like work, job, often the two are treated as synonyms, although perhaps they're, they're not. Um, I do a lot of work that's not paid. Is it a job? Is it a work? Is it a hobby? Is it a passion or a love? Or am I just a victim of a nasty universe making me do this stuff? When we use words like work, what do we mean by the word? Uh, similarly, vacation. You know, a lot of there's, you know, there's work and then I, I can go on vacation. To me, vacation is pretty hard work, too. I remember as a kid, my dad would get home from work on Friday and we would have two weeks, later three, of his annual vacation. So pack up the car. Um, and by the time I was 10 or 12, as the oldest child, I was helping. There's a lot of work going on vacation, camping around the country in a station wagon with four kids. And obviously, mom and dad had a lot more work to do. But uh, I was a witness and part-time participant and frequent antagonist in that <laughs> project. So anyway, work, vacation, um, free time. This has been an interesting one for me. What does it mean that time is free? I didn't pay for it, or it, it just comes about by accident, or I often, it means when I use the word, I, free means there's nothing I have to do. And often that kind of free time is scary to the degree we're kind of socialized to be busy. You know, it's, all, it's okay to go on a retreat and they've got schedules and bells and rules, so then I'm sort of doing something, although it's kind of something that's not really something. Or, but it's insight. Oh, that's good. So I'm accomplishing and being a good, uh, productive American Buddhist of some kind. So, but free time, nothing to do, can be, be very scary because most of us don't have an identity that goes with that, unless you want to be a bum 
or lazy or a worthless good for nothing. Um, maybe if you're a dreamer or an artist. Uh, a friend of mine out on the West Coast, he, on his website, he's got a nice little article on busyness called A Room with a View. And he cites the Virginia Woolf book about women writers, how to be a good writer, you need a room of your own. Oh, no, it's a room of your own, I think. Anyway, you need a space where you can just sit around if you want to be a good writer. And he pointed out it's pretty much the same with meditation. You need a space with nothing to do. And how that's practically illegal in some places or some families. Don't sit around doing nothing. That's communist or something. So anyway. Or one last word, downtime. Uh, on Mother's Day, I was talking about busyness in Walla Walla, and a woman there brought up just our, you know, uptime. We might not use that, but downtime. So even when we're not busy, we give it pejorative na- labels like downtime. You know, it's a real downer, it's depressing. So to be mindful of the words we use, not just in speech, but in um, our own thinking, as we justify things to ourselves or the way we criticize others. I know we're not supposed to do that, but sometimes we do. And so to listen carefully to the words we use. And the words, especially where we start to notice there's some reaction, like I was pointing out about free time or work. Some of us, just to say the word work, it's kind of that the weight, the heaviness of the universe descends on our poor little shoulders when we call something work. Or it's, you know, it's an obligation. Whereas there were times in human history that work, and not in the sense of paid work, but just work was uh, a value in itself and central to a meaningful life. So this can be another area of inquiry. It's an inquiry into meaning. And these meanings will reveal our values and what really matters to us. Like, which do we value more, meditation or busyness? Which do we value more, freedom from suffering or having a lot of stuff? Which gets the most of our attention? Which gets the most of our time and energy? Which gets the most of our resources? Which is truly necessary? And which is an option? A third area 
is to inquire who is doing the busy. And this is where we get into some of the core Buddhist teachings. For the common sense mind, it's assumed that, you know, there's somebody here doing whatever we're doing. The deeper Buddhist teachings don't make that assumption. So we can turn it into a question. Who is being busy? Who is doing this busyness? I think it helps if we've already been doing this sort of mindfulness and questioning of words, meanings, and values that I've just talked about. Because this one's more subtle and more profound. So as we're doing something, uh, for example, I'm in the middle of working up plans for a building permit for the cabin that we're, we're working on. And I have to redo the permit because it expired. And we're also, uh, we've decided to do more than we originally planned. So as I'm going about, and this takes time to talk with plumbers and electricians and things, and as we, Joe Marie and myself, talk about how we want it to be and as we get information. So this is going on for a couple weeks now. Who is doing this? What are the identities and self-images I have? One, I have this kind of identity and pride of, you know, kind of do-it-yourselfer, uh, also saving money rather than uh, Donna going into paying somebody else to do this. I, I can do it myself. It's fun. There's a kind of mental challenge. But in this are certain identities of, of me. You know, this is for me an expression of Buddhist practice. So there's some identity, which means some ego. If I hold to that identity, then ego pops up. That there's more going on than just doing the planning, doing the drawings, collecting information, making decisions. There's somebody doing this. There's somebody with certain ideas of being a good Buddhist. Somebody with certain political opinions. Uh, somebody with a value around self-sufficiency. So there are these images, these pictures of how I want to be, how I'd like to be, or even sometimes how I think I am. Other times when I'm uh, browsing the internet, or uh, what else have I been doing lately? Well, going to airports, getting on planes, uh, being searched through security, these are also, in my life, uh, common activities. 
Actually, in airports, I'm usually not that busy. It's kind of this slow-moving transit period. But on retreat, I can be busy doing interviews. Or when I'm home, uh, answering emails and phone calls. So who's doing this? Is it some passive me who's, again, kind of falling into a victim thing? The universe is making me do this. Or am I um, owning up to it? No, this is all choice. Don't actually have to answer all these emails. There might be consequences. I would probably still be alive despite those consequences. Some of the consequences might be even good, such as uh, more time to meditate or more sanity and so on. Another part of this who is busy uh, might have to do with what is called self-esteem. And then, of course, there's good self-esteem or high self-esteem, and then the flip side of low self-esteem. Yesterday, or last year, somebody sent me an, uh, some articles that there's, a, there's now a critique in the psychological literature about the whole self-esteem business, where it's a particularly American thing that we need to have high self-esteem. And then now there's an industry to help us have self-esteem, though the this article, and I, I haven't followed it up, says that it's largely a manufactured problem. I won't go into that any further, but that's just a way to say that this is something that seems to get a lot of attention among us. So as I'm busy, what does this have to do with my self-esteem? And I'm highlighting the word self because of identity, self-image. There's this somebody who has esteem, esteem in the eyes of others. So how am I trying to look in the eyes of others? Who am I trying to impress? Who do I want to like me or approve of me? Because a lot of our self-image is also what we want others to see. Part of it's also how we esteem ourselves. Do we feel good about ourselves? How much of the busyness is for the purpose of self-esteem and looking good in the eyes of others? And does it work? If I'm busy doing a lot of things because I think people will like me, or for me it's often the reverse, if I don't do something, somebody will be upset and they won't like me. And yet I'm too busy, somewhat stressed out, somewhat scattered. The kind of liking I may earn, how, um, how meaningful, how lasting is it, or how superficial. And lastly, in this asking who is doing this busyness, what's the payoff? The way I'm using the word busyness mainly tonight 
tends to assume that there's a payoff. If I do this, if I finish this, or if I look busy, which often is important, what's the payoff of that? In other words, what's the goal? What's the purpose in our minds psychologically, emotionally? And is, is that payoff liberation from suffering? Or is it something else? So these are some practices that use mindfulness. Hopefully will foster some insight where we actually see what's going on in our behavior and what's driving our behavior. Thoughts, emotional states, attitudes, values, goals, beliefs, and so on. Connected with busyness and its opposite which we might call laziness or whatever you, word you might think is best. I'd like to conclude with a fourth practice, which I'll call doing without a doer. As I inquire into busyness, I, I tend to notice that there's something which I prefer not calling busyness, but it doesn't, I still can, uh, that feels really healthy and okay. And then I see other forms of busyness that don't seem wise, compassionate, or healthy. So I kind of play around with uh, wholesome busyness, unwholesome busyness, or, or just busyness, which kind of means unwholesome and not so wise, and then something else like wise activity or healthy activity. And when that sort of thing seems to be happening, and I've had experiences like that on retreat, had them over the years while doing certain projects like uh, translation work. Some of the time the translation work goes really well. I mean, it seems like healthy activity and then there are other times where um, there's resistance and translators block and so on. Or even nowadays, some of the work at Liberation Park, working in the garden, making teepee poles, uh, doing stuff with the horses, the planning I was just talking about. Sometimes it seems to be pretty healthy. And I'd like to posit that these things are in the direction of, or at times, are doing without a doer. The question of just a moment ago of who's doing the busyness, there's a doer. There's a sense of self, of me, of somebody who's busy. It seems qualitatively much different when there's no doer. And the way I'm using the word, these words, 
if there's no doer, there's nobody to be busy, ergo no busyness. But often there's activity, which is okay with me. By the way, even on a meditation retreat, there's activity in the Buddhist sense of the word. A meditation is a practice. If you're not doing anything, then you're either asleep or a, a zombie or um, in some sort of dead-end trance zone. But meditation, even on the most refined level, is an activity. But is an activity with a doer or without a doer? You can call it meditating without a meditator or contemplating without a contemplator or mindfuling without a mindfuler. When I've brought this up, uh, there's often been questions about, well, how might we identify or recognize this qualitatively different situation or space of doing without a doer. So here are some of the uh, qualities or possible descriptors of what it's like when there's doing without a doer. One, doing without a doer is fully present to the doing. There's a presence, which we often call mindfulness, but it's it's not just kind of fumbling level of mindfulness. There's a, a clear awareness brought to the activity. And even more important, the awareness and the activity are not two different things. There's not the sort of detached observer or me being mindful of myself doing things. That's that's still doing, that's kind of observing, there's an observer observing some activity it's detached from, which is not the healthiest way to go about it. So there's a kind of presence and it's fluid, it's flowing. The Thai teacher Ajahn Chah had a nice uh, metaphor of still flowing water. So when an activity is flowing in stillness, it can be doing a lot. It can even, you know, be doing some heavy lifting. But there's a fluidity to it. Another aspect is a meaningfulness. Not artificial meaningfulness where we, you know, put our passion into it or we convince ourselves it's meaningful. But there's, I think we all have our times in life where something just is felt to be meaningful or you might say it's deeply satisfying. There's a real contentment to it without trying. Now, those of us who feel a need to rationalize things or explain things. You know, I, I grew up with the question, what are you doing? So I got in the habit of generating a response even before asked. So, you know, convincing myself I'm doing something good and right is not what I'm 
talking about here. But when in the actual activity, whether it's following the breath in and out, cooking healthy food, gardening, whatever our vocation may be, or any other activity that we've wisely chosen to do, if it's wise, if it's harmless, if it is of some benefit to our lives and the lives of others, it can naturally be meaningful and satisfying. I think also there's a simplicity to it. Simplicity in the old meaning of the word means a oneness to it. So it's also wholehearted. One of my uh, aspects of busyness is when I get scattered. And this is why I think it's pretty hard to do Dhamma in a multitasking way. Because if you're multitasking, you're to some extent scattered or at least fragmented. Whereas doing without a doer, there's just fully doing whatever's happening in the moment. So there's a wholeheartedness or simplicity to it. Confidence comes naturally to doing without a doer. Not false confidence where we pretend we know what we're doing. It's more the confidence that even if we don't know what we're doing, we'll learn it. But there's an inner confidence that's not proud, and it's not about self-esteem, but there's a natural esteem, if you like, without the self part. It just comes out of doing something that's meaningful, satisfying, harmless, appropriate, and so on. There's a natural confidence. By the way, in the Buddha's description of good, healthy states of concentration, confidence is one of the terms used in the standard descriptions. So that, that shows up in meditation. When meditation is meditating without a meditator, these, these same qualities will be present, including confidence. And there will be an esteem that's not about me. One last thing I'll mention is equipoise, or if you like, equanimity. There's a natural balance in doing without a doer. So it's okay to take breaks. It's okay to look out the window or up at the sky or listen to the birds or see a picture of your children or friends or parents or the Buddha and just enjoy that for a moment and go back to work. One can, with the fluidity, awareness can move between things and yet be wholehearted about whatever one's doing at the moment. So you can take a break, take a few breaths, and come back to the software you're, you're um, debugging or the acupunctures you're sticking in people and so on, whatever your healthy, wholesome activities may be. So those are some qualities that uh, seem to me to be involved in doing without a doer. Ultimately, 
and I'll just bring in some standard Buddhist theory to wrap this up. It means doing without greed, hatred, delusion. And that means it's a doing which is quenched. Or you may be familiar with the term cessation of suffering. I prefer quenching of suffering. So the activity is ceased. And that may not make that may not make much sense if we use the word cessation, which is one reason I don't use it. Because it doesn't apply to some of the ways we need it to apply or some of the areas of life. So if you like cessation, fine. The Pali words niroda, it's a simile of nibbana, nirvana. What is the kind of doerless doing that is quenched, liberated, cooled, or if you like, ceased? I'll bet these happen every day if we're not too busy to notice. So those are uh, some thoughts and reflections on busyness and uh, the floor is open for comments, observations, insights, rebuttals and the like. Yes? Vigo uh, was with you all, pretty much all the way till the end. Uh, and uh, I just, maybe I can take care of a few more time questions. You talked about ceased. But I just, I get it. Well, it, I just use that word because uh, many teachers use for the third noble truth, it's dukkha niroda, and that's often translated cessation of suffering. And in my understanding, uh, suffering ends or quenches or ceases when there's no identification, no clinging, no egoism. So that's what I was trying to get at was ceased. But I think uh, in English it doesn't work too well. Does quenched work better? If this long as yeah, yes. I guess I can miss the, the, the object of that. Yeah, and, th and that's often with the words, and for example, with cessation, sometimes it gets confused that it's about cessation of suffering not necessarily cessation of life or activity. But some people, cessation becomes some kind of nothingness, which is, I think, a form of confusion.
symptoms became busier than it's probably This is a topic that I thought about immense amounts of. I'm trying to select just a few things to uh, bring back and see your thoughts on it. When I look at why I'm simply and chronically feel short of time, there are many reasons, and we touched on them a lot. But the single biggest one is undoubtedly the time I put into the baby. So I've looked at that through a tremendous amount. Why is that so often consuming? And it's not simple. It's in part because I live in this culture and I work in an organization that is part of the economic system that you touched on. American capitalist economic system that has the values you mentioned and really has its primary objective to maximize consumption. That's the primary objective of capitalism. And if you stop and reflect on that, it's not very difficult to understand how that came to be. And it's a really pretty unconscious and pretty unhealthy drive to satisfy our desires for what it's never going to work. So if I look at my participation in an organization that has those values, I don't like it very much. And yet, it's difficult to step outside my culture. There's no incremental way to do that. For example, I can't say, I'm only going to do 75% of my job and I'll have more time. It's very clear I do 100% or I have no job. Uh, so that's a conundrum. Other issues very closely related, uh, there are many of them, I won't go on much longer. Um, we all, I think, or many of us, need to find a way to live healthy lives in, in spite of our culture in these institutions that perhaps are driven in unconscious, not very healthy ways. And perhaps I, as an individual, could and, and should drop out of that part of our culture. But there's a part of me that really doesn't want to. It wants to make it part of my practice for the benefit of all beings to stick in there and try to figure out how to live a healthy life in that context. But that's quite a challenge. Any of your thoughts on that? Right. The, um, I agree with, I think, everything you said. The impulse to sort of drop out, which is kind of the impulse to run away from the problem, is probably not helpful or even uh, realistic. It's like uh, all the people on their first meditation retreat think they, they may have to go off and be a monk or nun. I was a monk for many years. I got that a lot. And very few actually did. Or some people get the idea from a retreat that, oh, well, this is how you practice Buddhism. I should do this all the time but I can't. So I think the impulse to sort of drop out is one, unrealistic for the vast majority of people. Therefore, it doesn't do any good to entertain it. Second, 
it may not be wise anyway. So part of what I was trying to get at in the inquiries I was suggesting is whatever institution, organization you're employed by, to think, think it through and then go deeper than thinking, but really examine your attitudes, why you're there, your motivation, so that you can do that activity with as much wisdom and compassion as possible, which is what you were suggesting at the end. I think we can only do that if we examine some of those cultural assumptions, the cultural baggage that many of us carry, because it'll be baggage until we really look through it. And, you know, maybe our culture is pushing us to be consumers. Well, we, we can, that's something we can change to a certain extent. And learning to leave, at least at home, being more simple, more moderate in consumption, that will shift how we go about things at work. So as we examine some of these things that are usually not examined, they're kind of inculcated since we're children. They're in the Saturday morning cartoons. Walt Disney's full of it. Uh, but if we try to go back and work through some of that, I'm hoping we can bring more clarity to the activities we're doing, including including at work. And I wonder, I hear things, you know, most people at work are sorting paper clips and gossiping and doing a lot of stuff <laughs> that maybe, and I, I don't want to make it into an efficiency productivity thing, but I'm just wondering, there might be room to shift our attitudes and our moment-to-moment -moment motivation while we're working. I hope that's possible. If it's not, we're going to you know, continue to be a pretty neurotic culture. And all the meditation in the world won't, won't liberate us from that. I think that's another escapist idea that, you know, I'll make up for this by meditating. It's kind of baby boomer meditation. It, it won't do it. It's whatever we learn in meditation, how do we bring it into everything else or, or vice versa? Yeah, I was going to say, there's work hard and play hard. So either, either we are doing business or productivity, or we are busy entertaining ourselves. Um, I, I think that's how we compensate for, for the business, is, is by entertaining ourselves. And the entertainment is a different kind of business. Mm -hmm. It's just the, the, the you know, feels better. <laughs> I mean, it seems like we are enjoying it more when we are busy entertaining ourselves. But I think, I think, uh, uh, to me, in young people, I see that more of a problem where 
if they are not productive, they are playing video games or whatever. That's uh, so also a big problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what you said is exactly right. That a lot of our so-called player entertainment is just a more it's work that we think we enjoy, or maybe we do enjoy, but it's that's well worth looking into the relationship to the two. And does that actually keep us more busy? And does this idea that these things are fun, does that then put a burden on work that makes work not fun and therefore a problem when instead of work being enjoyable too? Which Ajahn Buddhadasa, that was uh, one of his phrases he liked to use was, um, see, it, it doesn't sound as good in English as it does in Thai, but enjoying your work mean, is to be happy while working. So, but the idea of if one's really wise and compassionate, one enjoys one's work. And then at some point, work and play no longer need to be distinguished. One thing I've been experimenting with a little bit um, in my practice recently is trying to watch when I'm really busy and I'm distracted. And I used to think that if I slowed down, I would be relaxed, and if I sped up, I would be distracted. But I found that that isn't necessarily the case. So I can walk really fast and be loose and tight, and same thing, I can walk really slow and be up tight. So I, the question I'm not sure I can articulate this. The characteristics that you described that you know would be there if you were doing without the doer. Are you suggesting we have to do less to have those, or can we keep the same amount of business? <laughs> Probably somewhere in between. <laughs> I think many of us are probably more busy than we can really handle. And therefore, that in itself will bring up a lot of ego. But I don't know what, and for each, I'm leaving it really wide open that each person finds, you know, what are the activities of your life that are really worth doing? And then, you know, over a lifespan, a life has its arc, and things like that will change. So it seems to me like you were your first example. It's, we can, there are phases or periods where we're doing a lot, and maybe we're pretty fast about it. We shouldn't assume that that's good or bad. Our culture, I think, assumes it's good. We don't want to go the opposite way and assume it's bad. But find out, like you did, you know, is this contracted or not? Is it uptight or not? And I think that's what practice is about, just bringing appropriate questions and paying attention and then following up, watching it, and learning that way, rather than falling back on the guidance of a culture which I think we can't fully trust. It's not all bad. 
but I do think it's I, I don't want to rely on it too much nor do I think I can figure my way out of it either You could use the word absorption. It's not, it's an absorption in which there's real awareness. So I wouldn't, you know, some people would talk about you're lost in something. I don't mean being lost, but there's an awareness without it being me aware. So, so that's kind of what I meant by wholehearted. What I was going to bring up is that um, I'm aware of with myself, my uh, my energy really kind of peaks and valleys kind of extreme. So when I do get into kind of a productivity, like an example would be like selling weeds, um, I can get so caught up in it that it's really hard to stop going weeds and I'll, I'll still be getting a few in the dark, you know. Very hard. And then I get to that other side where... Um, I'm so exhausted that it's hard to do, it's hard for me to pick an activity other than like watching TV, which is not a good use of time. But all I need to do is hold my eyes open when I do it. So, what are, do you have some suggestions how to, you know, and that's real mainstream, that's what our culture is TV watching and cable. And, but to really help us people that are trying to, um, you know, see that happen energy for what it is and redirect it. Do you have suggestions of low activity or low energy kind of activity? <laughs> Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm a real TV zombie, so we don't have one. But you could, you know, put a, a metering get a little meter box so you have to pay a quarter for every 15 minutes just to make yourself a little more mindful do you really want to watch it um, but I, I've got a list of these things because we don't have a TV but I can do the same with the internet where I'll be just kind of spinning I similar to you you know like I'm proud of myself yesterday I was weed whacking in our garden and I didn't finish. And that was a good thing because if I'd finished, my shoulders would be really sore and I had some other stuff to do. So, And it didn't need to get finished. It'll get finished Monday. So that's that was a wise procrastination. But I tend to be more obsessive about things that i got to finish it at least certain things like that. So. And that actually answered my, my question. was just, you know, being more uh, mindful and bringing more um, wide contemplation on it and those activities that I don't burn myself out. Yeah, I've been working on that one for a number of years now and have made some progress where because I'll I'll burn I'll go too much and then I'm exhausted and then I'll just want to do some mindless activity 
But for me, there's the illusion that I'm doing something, and that's good. Even though it's of no value, I'm making myself even more tired, but it's I'm deluding myself that I'm doing something. And that, that part of me that's still stuck on that value, which is weakening, but it still crops up. So a little sooner, turn off the computer or the TV. For me, do a little qigong. Uh, I carve spoons. So like I'm working on a spoon for a friend, just take 10 minutes and sand the spoon or my wife knits. So having those little activities that don't take much energy or read a poem. You know, not a whole book. Just <laughs> have a book of poetry or some of the easier, shorter suttas of the Buddha and just read half a page or a paragraph. For me, that's relaxing. Or play with the cat. So if you can find out for yourself the activities that are calming, grounding, relaxing, pleasurable, that are suitable when you're tired. But it is okay to just go to sleep. Um, my question is to do with, um, I know that for me, you know, when I plan Nothing that I, I can pull up that time pretty easily. And I was wondering as a monk, if you found the same issue, I can imagine this being a business with Sophia, a child wanting to get off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a busy monk. Because some of the attitudes I've talked about tonight, I noticed coming in. Part of it, young monks tend to need. It's, it's common if, if you've got younger monks or novices, you need to have a lot of work to keep them busy. That's even in the ties have to do that because otherwise they're getting into trouble. <laughs> so girls may be the same, but my experience was with the boys. Uh, but so there's that part, but there's also my, there's a judgment in my mind that being a monk, if you're just sitting around meditating or whatever, that's sort of self-centered. And so I had this need to prove that to myself mainly that being a monk was a worthwhile thing to do. And I had a, a, the abbot. My teacher wasn't the abbot. He very much liked giving people work. And so there was a strong service ethos. And there were people around who were always happy to give you stuff to do. So it wasn't, so it was pretty easy to be busy. And then I got into cahoots with the NGOs in Bangkok and the women's organizations and the this and the that. So, you know, going off to meetings and conferences. So. In fact, um, some of the most competent monks of my generation who are still monks are all on the verge of burnout because there just aren't enough of them and the whole culture kind of abuses them. 
Uh, did that respond to your question, or did I just pick up on the last bit? No, no, I did. I mean, I think basically, did you catch it? I mean, did you understand it at the time? I started to, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think doing nothing is a dead end. Well, I, maybe it's just not the way to go, doing nothing. How is it possible to do nothing? Watch your breathing or contemplate emptiness. But what does it actually mean to do nothing? It, it might be a phrase that confuses or doesn't help. So, you know, as a minimum, pay attention. But it can be a qualitatively different kind of activity. So that's all for tonight. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.